Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for August 7th, 2018. I've got an interview for you guys today that should be very interesting. I'll be speaking in a minute here by phone with Alex Thurston, who is visiting assistant professor at Miami University of Ohio. He was previously at Georgetown. Uh, Alex is an expert in the Sahel, which geographically speaking is the region uh, that stretches across Africa, uh, that transitions from the Sahara Desert in the north to the savanna in the south. Typically, when we think of countries that are in the Sahel region, uh, we're talking about a lot of West African countries, Senegal, uh, parts of Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, Niger, Nigeria, uh, etc. Alex covers, uh, his research covers uh, extremist movements and Islamism in the the Sahel. Uh, He's written two books, uh, one in 2016 called Salafism in Nigeria, Islam Preaching and Politics, and another one that came out last year called Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, He also runs a blog. I'm trying to remember all the things to plug here. He also runs a blog uh, called sahelblog.wordpress.com. That's the address. I'll put that in the show description. Uh, If you're interested in deeper coverage of issues related to this region, uh, then his blog is a great place to to go for that kind of stuff. so uh, I have I've invited Alex on to talk about Nigeria. Uh, we're going to talk particularly about Boko Haram, but also uh, I hope to cover uh, some hope to get into some discussion of the uh, Fulani herder slash farmer conflicts that have been going on across kind of the central band of Nigeria, uh, and then a little bit maybe about the political situation in Nigeria, which is in a bit of flux. Uh, with that said, uh, let's start the interview. Okay, so I'm joined by Alex Thurston, uh, visiting assistant professor at Miami University of Ohio. Uh, he writes for the Sahel blog at sahelblog.wordpress.com. Uh, he's an expert in West African Sahel region politics and Islamism. Uh, and he's written two books, one Salafism in Nigeria, Islam Preaching and Politics, and the other is Boko Haram, the History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, we're going to be talking about Boko Haram and some other Nigeria stuff today. So thank you, Alex, for, for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Alex, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Boko Haram and sort of the... Uh, uh, the kind of expansive sense. I think for most people, their introduction to Boko Haram was the Chaibok kidnappings, um, which really, you know, happened uh, a fair bit after they got their start, and their origins are um, an interesting story. And I was hoping that you could could talk about how they kind of developed out of. Um, a sort of non-violent or at least initially non-violent uh, Islamist movement into this uh, extremely violent jihadist group that uh, you know has been more deadlier in, in uh, some of the past you know couple of the past years than than even ISIS has been. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, one thing to say right off the right off the top is that. 
there's still a lot that, that people don't know and that remains disputed, especially about their origins. I mean, the two kind of key, you know, founders who people talk about, Muhammad Yusuf and, and Abu Bakr Shakao, um, you know, came from extremely remote parts of northeastern Nigeria and had pretty obscure rural upbringings, and, and they don't even necessarily kind of, you know, come into focus in the historical record until the early 2000s. So, you know, there's still a lot that, that people don't know, but it seems like, you know, both of these figures and, and some of the other, you know, early movers in the movement uh, kind of drifted between some of the different religious tendencies in, in northern Nigeria in the 1980s and 1990s, and then settled into, you know, the Salafi community in the northeast. And Yusuf, in particular, who's widely considered the founder of the movement, uh, by the early 2000s was, was preaching in a really strident way uh, against democracy, against Western-style education, against uh, constitutions and parliaments, kind of all the trappings of the, the secular state. And then over time, uh, A, some of his followers were interested from a pretty early point in, in pretty hardline, you know, jihadist activity. And then he himself, you know, over the course of, of you know, say 2002 to 2009, came into more and more deadly conflict or more and more kind of tension with authorities, which led to, to the mass uprising of, of Boko Haram in 2009. Um, since that time, they've been really, you know, a, a clandestine, uh, jihadist movement, sometimes, you know, uh, really on the upswing and able to take territory and so forth, and then sometimes, uh, you know, more kind of hanging on at the at the edges and trying to survive, but still uh, able to conduct suicide bombings and, and, you know, project all kinds of violence, especially in northeastern Nigeria. Talk about the, the you say, I mean, they, they were attracted to the Salafi community in northeast Nigeria. How did Salafism come into Nigeria in the first place? Is this a, a case of the Saudis sort of exporting Wahhabism, or was it sort of more of a, uh, an, a domestic kind of indigenous development? Or um, what are the... How did, how did the community come to exist so that uh, uh, Muhammad Yusuf and, and uh, his group came to be, you know, sort of associated with it? Yeah, it's a it's a long, long story in a way. I mean, but I would I mean to boil it down, I would say there were there were a couple main factors. Some of the early early movers before you even get real significant Saudi influence in the country. Um, some of the early movers were graduates of British colonial schools in the 1940s and 50s. Um, the British kind of set out to create what they saw as a more modern you know cadre of. of judges and, and young kind of Muslim civil servants and so forth. Uh, and so the British really trained, you know, particularly in a couple of specialized schools, they really trained people to, you know, question tradition and to debate and so forth. And so when some of those guys started graduating from those schools, you know, lo and behold, there were consequences that the British hadn't anticipated, and they began, some of them really began challenging, you know, Sufism, challenging uh, more traditional forms of Islam in, in the North. So those were some of the early kind of Salafi-leaning figures. Then you do get, you know, in the in the 1970s and afterwards, uh, a significant amount of Saudi influence. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, recruiting with, with more and more sophistication uh, Nigerians to go and study at the Islamic University of Medina, um, you know, Saudi uh, funding, you know, various figures and, and movements and so forth. So by the time some of these young, you know, guys who 
Vietnam kind of came onto the scene in the 1990s, uh, there was a really, really well-developed, you know, network of, of Salafis across northern Nigeria. I mean, you know, uh, study circles, mosques, uh, you know, preaching conventions, uh, you know, annual uh, exegesis of the Quran during Ramadan, uh, all kinds of schools, you know, businesses, a thriving kind of market of selling you know, first cassette tapes, and then later on, you know, CDs and MP3s and so forth. So there was this kind of infrastructure that they uh, came into and, and that they tried to co-op to a certain extent. Okay. I, I want to ask you, this is a, a really basic question, but um, talk for a second about the name Boko Haram, because that's not the group's formal name. And I'm, I mean, you know, kind of pre- Split, which we'll talk about in a in a few minutes, but that that wasn't the group's formal name. Like, how did it get attached to these guys? And and do we know for sure that that it means what everybody says it means, which is like Western learning is forbidden, or uh, you know something like that? Yeah, no. I mean, this is a, this is actually far from a, a simple question. I mean, this is this is extremely contentious. I mean, both both for the group and even to some extent, you know, among among scholars and so forth. As you say, you know, it was never what they called themselves. In fact, it seems that for a long time, you know, up until this kind of turning point in, in 2009, uh, when they rose up and, and then had to go underground after they were crushed, it seems that up until then they didn't necessarily even call themselves anything. You know, they, they tended to talk about, and didn't even maybe necessarily see themselves as, as you know, some kind of well-organized movement. Um, for a while they just referred to themselves as doing dawah, you know, or, or preaching, uh, and they considered themselves just kind of, uh, you know, Salafis, and, and they considered themselves to have an exclusive possession of the truth. Uh, Boko Haram was one of the people called them because of this, you know, emphasis in Muhammad Yusuf's preaching on uh, denouncing Western-style education. Um, this word, you know, well, Haram is, is, you know, a complicated term, obviously, but in a way it's easier of the two to explain. I mean, haram is an Islamic legal term, meaning things that are, that are forbidden. Um, Boko, though, I mean, it's a house of word. It can mean, the original meaning is something like fake or, you know, hoodwinking people or deceiving people. Uh, in the colonial period, it got attached to, to Western-style education, and it got attached to the idea of writing Hausa in Roman script. Um, so in a way, you know, the translation, Western-style education is forbidden by Islam, is, is a fair and accurate translation. Um, Yusuf definitely, you know, said... A, you know, government schools in Nigeria are just an extension of the British colonial schools. B, you know, according to him, uh, the schools taught all kinds of things that contravened Islam. You know, he saw the teaching of um, Darwinism or teaching about the water cycle or anything like that. He saw all that as, as you know, contradicting Islam. And then C, he said that, you know, just the, the kind of environment of the schools, um, the mixing of genders, you know, pledging allegiance to the Nigerian flag, and so forth, that all that was um, was also contradicting Islam. But I think then, beyond the idea of schools, I think there was a bigger kind of sense that that not just Western schools, but Western culture, Western civilization, um, the Nigerian westernized elite, that all that was, was sort of morally corrupt and rotten at the core. Um, so that was, you know, so that was something he emphasized in his, in his preaching, and, and then people started calling them Boko Haram. Uh, but they themselves don't call, you know, don't call themselves that. They they have a couple of different, you know, names. Um, a lot of which just boil down to saying, you know, basically, we're the only real Salafis and we're doing real jihad. 
So the other kind of origin story question I want to ask you, and this may be um, too big <laughs> to, to cover in uh, something like this, but um, is to, to, to talk about how the, the way that Nigeria is constructed out of, uh, you know, the, the Borno Empire in the north and, um, you know, the, this, uh, there were other kind of Muslim principalities in the northern part of what became Nigeria. And then in the south, it's more, uh, Christian, the population's more Christian. And it, it, um, is this one of those places that you kind of talk about uh, the remnants of colonialism and mashing things together that don't necessarily go together very well um, into colonial entities that then become states and um, you know struggle to define themselves after that? Is that what what happened in Nigeria, and does that play into uh, the difficulties with groups like Boko Haram and and um, you know, the, the, the sort of, is there a tension there between the North and the South that, that factors into the, uh, the conflict? Yeah. I mean, as you say, you know, a lot of huge questions at stake and, and questions that are, I think really on, on Nigerians' minds a lot of the time, and particularly around, around election time when some of these questions of, you know, balance and national unity come to the fore. And, and as you know, Nigeria is going to be having presidential and, and state and, you know, parliamentary elections. Um, in February of next year. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the country was really put together out of out of an extremely diverse set of, of pre-existing, you know, societies and, and polities and so forth. Um, the South was was implicated in, you know, the Atlantic world and the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, the British had a much earlier, you know, presence there, as did other Europeans. Um, whereas the North was, was primarily under the control of, of two Muslim empires, uh, you know, the, the Borno Empire that you mentioned, and then the Sokoto Caliphate in, in, you know, the Northwest and across much of the North. So initially the British, uh, you know, or really all through colonialism, the British administered the two territories separately. I mean, southern Nigeria was much more kind of directly uh, administered. There was a lot more missionary activity there, a lot more educational and infrastructural development and so forth. And then the North was much more uh, kind of classic indirect rule where the British found these Muslim empires in place and then they sought to mostly rule through them. Nigeria, you know, North and South were, were formally amalgamated in 1914. And so in a sense, it's been one country since then. Um, but even at the time of independence, you know, there was a lot of just mistrust and, and even unfamiliarity between between North and South, and since that time, uh, there have been really complicated, you know, efforts to uh, to build what they call federal character, to to rotate power, you know, not just between the North and the South, but also to ensure that different parts of the North and the South are always represented. Uh, there's been, you know, really contentious.
uh, it's maybe not an accident that Boko Haram arose in, you know, not just the north, but in the northeast, which is one of the most remote and impoverished parts of the country, um, you know, a part of the country that is uh, arguably marginalized, not just within national politics, but even within the north itself. Um, and I think that maybe some of the response to Boko Haram has been shaped by uh, the sense of, of the Northeast being so remote. You know, in a way, it's, I mean, in many ways, it's a national problem that affects, you know, millions and millions of people. But on the other hand, um, you know, the city of Maiduguri, the Northeast as a whole, I think can seem very far away from, from the capital of Abuja or, or, you know, especially from, from Lagos, which is in the far southwest and is the commercial, is the commercial you know, center of the country. Um, so I think sometimes, yeah, these, you know, really kind of century-plus-old uh, tensions and divisions have, have shaped the conflict. Is there a, an ethnic component to, to Boko Haram? I, I, it's predominantly a Kanuri group, right? And there are there's another conflict going on in... Nigeria that I, I want to ask you about after we, we kind of get through some some Boko Haram stuff, uh, which involves the Fulani who, you know, have been kind of clashing her, you know, the, they're more pastoralists. They've been clashing with farmers and, and settled people kind of across the middle band of the country. Uh, and that's, but that's separate. Boko Haram's not involved in that. And they're, they're really more, uh, uh, I guess, predominantly Kanuri, but does that is that like a defining feature to you of of Boko Haram, or is it just sort of incidental? To me, it's it's not really a defining feature of them. I mean, you know, I've heard estimates of of them being up to you know seventy percent ethnically Kanuri. Um, you know, definitely Muhammad Yusuf, the the founder, was Kanuri. Shakao is Kanuri. Um, the leader of this other faction, you know, who's, who's most likely Muhammad Yusuf's son, would therefore also be Kanuri. I mean, you know, but they've never uh, they've never used a vocabulary of like. Kanuri self-assertion. They've never talked about wanting any kind of Kanuri state. I mean, they talk in the in the vocabulary of jihadism, basically, and they use, you know, definitely Muhammad Yusuf, you know, would preach in Kanuri sometimes, uh, but he also, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, preaching in Hausa, which is not just the language of one ethnic group, but is really the lingua franca of northern Nigeria. You know, so there was definitely an effort by them to to have a multi-ethnic base. Uh, and to, and so yeah, to present themselves as, as this you know jihadist or proto jihadist uh, you know movement rather than some kind of uh, ethnic uh, self assertion movement. Okay. So talk about uh, the early years and be as as you know do do as much summing up as you want uh, okay. of the insurgency after they they. Uh, turn to violence in a major way in 2009 and Chicago takes over uh, the movement and get us up to uh, the point in I think it was 2015 where they uh, proclaimed their allegiance to ISIS um, in particular I'm interested in whether there were any connections with um, like Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or other 
Um, well, I don't really know if there were other uh, kind of international organizations that they could have affiliated with, but maybe if they had any links to, to even groups in other parts of Africa, like uh, Al-Shabaab in, in Somalia, I'm, I'd be interested in that. But also just, you know, sort of sketch out how the, the insurgency proceeded in those, you know, first six years, I guess. So it's worth mentioning that there was like um, a very short-lived kind of uh, proto-insurgency in, in very late 2003, um, which Muhammad Yusuf quickly distanced himself from. You know, and it's still unclear to what extent he knew about it or whether people had already, you know, whether the, the sort of breakaway group there had already uh, rejected him and gotten more hard line from him. It's also possible that Shakal was involved in that. But in any case, there was this kind of, you know, micro uh, dress rehearsal in 2003 that authorities kind of stamped out. Uh, but then, you know, in 2009, they, they mounted this much more serious uprising, you know, centered in the city of Madugari, where, where Yusuf and, and Boko Haram were based, uh, but spreading over multiple states in, in the northeast and even a bit in other parts of the north. Uh, Yusuf was killed, you know, shot basically by, by police uh, after being arrested. Uh, then the movement went underground and, and leadership passed to Shakao, um, who had been a deputy of Yusuf, you know, somebody who uh, sometimes, you know, people had said, okay, you know, somebody rumor, you know, uh, sort of reputed for his, his piety, his, you know, even some amount of learning and so forth. Um, but then he, you know, so he becomes a leader. The movement reemerges in, in early 2010, initially with kind of localized violence, um, so assassinating some of their political opponents and, and people who criticized them, um, assassinating members of the security services. Uh, then, you know, they, they really started coming to, to global attention in 2011. Um, they, you know, perpetrated two major suicide bombings in, in the capital. After that, they kind of retreated you know, not retreated, but but sort of refocused on the Northeast. They would continue to make forays into other parts of the North. They even, you know, claimed one attack in, in Lagos. But for the most part, it's really been a, a Northeastern insurgency. During, you know, in terms of contacts with, with Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda affiliates, there seems to have been some, you know, limited interactions with Al-Qaeda somewhat indirect during the lifetime of Muhammad Yusuf. There was a figure named Muhammad Ali who had reportedly uh, had contact with, with bin Laden even during the time when bin Laden was in Sudan in the, in the early 1990s. There was possibly a transfer of, of funds or an attempted transfer of funds in the early 2000s from al-Qaeda to Boko Haram. There were also people around Yusuf, particularly by the end of his life, around 2009, who had trained or fought with with al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM, which is, as you know, the, the kind of Saharan slash North African affiliate of al-Qaeda. But during Yusuf's lifetime, these contacts didn't really seem to, to add up to too much. In fact, there's a, there's a WikiLeaks cable from right after he died where you see uh, authorities in the Northeast saying, in fact, that they thought that al-Qaeda had cut off support to Yusuf because they decided he was too unreliable. The contacts got more sustained after... Yusuf died. Um, there's correspondence now that, that you know the CIA has declassified, and even that AQIM has released, showing that pretty immediately after Yusuf died, uh, Shakal reached out to AQIM and asked for training and financing and so forth. There's not a lot of details necessarily. You know, they, the the 
things that have been declassified don't necessarily say how many fighters were trained. Um, there's one, you know, instance of a, a transfer of something like 200,000 euros from AQIM to Boko Haram. Aside from that, though, there's not a lot of specifics uh, about what exactly happened. Um, and it looks then to, like, pretty quickly, you know, say by, even by 2011, uh, AQIM was having trouble dealing with Chacao. Um, Chacao has, you know, I, I think in some sense, He's, he's cultivated a public persona for himself of being kind of this wild-eyed madman, and I think he may be a bit more uh, rational and calculating behind the scenes. But it seems like even behind the scenes, he's uh, tyrannical, he alienates people, you know, he's capricious, he uh, kills people who disagree with him, he takes things, you know, takes people's lives, takes people's money, and so forth. So already by 2011, this was causing significant kinds of uh, problems for for the relationship between Chicago and AQIM. So you had a group of, of more kind of AQIM-leaning people break off uh, and start this kind of short-lived uh, movement called, called Ansar al-Muslimin or, or Ansaru in you know, early 2012, late 2011. Uh, but Chicago, you know, even despite these difficulties with, with AQIM, really remained the, the center of gravity for the movement for, for several years, you know. And he still commands a, a pretty large faction. Um, so meanwhile, you know, as Boko Haram was, was terrorizing the Northeast, you had a really heavy-handed military crackdown, uh, which involved all kinds of, you know, collective punishment and, and extrajudicial executions and torture and, and so forth. This probably pushed some people into the arms of Boko Haram and at the very least, you know, eroded civilian confidence in the, in the military so the situation really began to spiral out of control in the Northeast um, to the point where the government had to turn to civilian vigilantes, uh, which they, which may have kind of arisen organically or which may have been kind of astroturfed, but in either case they became, you know, funded and backed by the government. This was around, say, 2013. That really then, you know, pushed Boko Haram out of the cities to some extent because the civilian vigilantes, you know, were local people who had local knowledge who were able to kind of uh, figure out some of the networks and hiding places and so forth. The unintended consequence of that, though, was that Boko Haram, once it was pushed into smaller towns and rural areas, began to, you know, explicitly take and hold territory, which led up to, in the summer of 2014, them, them declaring their own, you know, sort of Islamic state. That, in turn, provoked uh, the neighbors of Nigeria, who were really kind of alarmed at Boko Haram's expansion and frustrated with Nigeria's inability to contain it. Uh, all this provoked Chad and Niger to basically invade northern Nigeria in 2015, and to, to, with some cooperation from the Nigerian military, they pushed Boko Haram out of a lot of the territory it controlled uh, in the you know, winter and, and spring of, of 2015. It was in that context then that Chacal pledged allegiance to ISIS in, in March of 2015. Uh, I think, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, um, to kind of shore up some of their, their credibility and their fortunes, you know, amid these military defeats. Second, because I don't think Boko Haram had ever met, and particularly Chacal had ever met the kind of criterion for, the kind of criteria for Al-Qaeda membership. And I think the Islamic State just has a much lower bar. Uh, and then the third reason for the allegiance may have been, you know, some of now Boko Haram, some of Chicago's rivals within Boko Haram say that um, they had basically demanded of him that he pledge allegiance uh, in order to keep his, 
his leadership post. 2015, I mean, it, it, that's the year that um, Muhammad Buhari is elected. He defeats Good Luck Jonathan, I think, partly yeah. because people were angry that Good Luck Jonathan hadn't responded in a more effective way to Boko Haram. There was still a lot of outrage over, for example, the Chaibok kidnapping and then his kind of weak reaction to it. Um, and Buhari... Uh, did, was it that year that he uh, declared that Boko Haram was defeated? I think like late in 2015. Uh, yeah, that, exactly. That they're they're done, and yet uh, they're still around. I don't, you know, I don't want to burst his bubble or anything. Um, so talk about how they came back. I mean, there there was, I think, a, a sense, and by the end of 2015, as you say, this sort of regional alliance had pushed them out of a lot of territory they were on the run they couldn't mount any significant attacks i mean they came back but they've come back from that and without i don't want to get into the split yet that'll be my next question but um what has allowed them to kind of get off the mat is it uh the is it nigerian dysfunction or you know the nigerian government's failure to kind of uh, bring things to an end has the regional response it seems like the regional response kind of died off as well um but i you you know uh talk about talk about why they've been able to hang around and even kind of uh, experience a little bit of a resurgence yeah i mean so definitely as you mentioned you know jonathan was was heavily criticized for his handling of, of the insurgency as a whole and uh, the chuba kidnapping in particular he did make this kind of very late game push in the context of, of the 2015 elections to, to retake some territory. So when Chad and Miguel came in, Jonathan also kind of, you know, stepped up the, the Nigerian military campaign. Buhari then kind of boxed himself in a bit rhetorically because he said early in, I, I think it was early in his presidency, it might have even been on the campaign trail, though, he said, I'm going to defeat Boko Haram within six months. So when he had this now, you know, infamous and, and honestly kind of ridiculous pronouncement in, in late 2015, Boko Haram was technically defeated. He was trying to say that he had met that six-month window, and, and never since then the administration and the military have said all that's left is kind of mopping up operations against a few holdouts. But as you say, I mean, they've, they've not only hung on, but they've also been able to still conduct you know, significant attacks and, and even to kind of exercise some, some maybe de facto political sway in, in parts of the Northeast. I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, one, there's the the difference between being able to take retake control of, of cities and towns and, and then, on the other hand, the, the real difficulty of controlling rural areas. You know, uh, Chicago has been widely, you know, considered to be to be in this area called the Sambisa Forest, which is a remote part of, of the northeastern state of Borno. Uh, the other faction has been said to operate along the shores of Lake Chad. But in either case, you know, since 2015, there's been a lot of uh, kind of rural retrenchment by, by you know, different factions of Boko Haram. Another part of the equation, I think, is that the Nigerian military um, has had real difficulty embracing anything other than kind of a, a heavy-handed, you know, body-count-style approach. And, and I don't think that they've made... You know, I'm not a big believer in 
in coin and things like that. But you know, they haven't they haven't even kind of uh, gone that far in, in that direction. And I don't think they've won much much trust or or so forth among civilians. Uh, and there's also terrible problems of, of corruption within the military, you know, and, and recurring reports of, of soldiers on the front line uh, not having the, the weapons that they need or the ammunition that they need and, and being very frightened to face Boko Haram. So in the countryside, I think it's it's really, uh, you know, still outside of government control in a lot of areas. Then, you know, Boko Haram has also been extremely uh, tenacious and, and adaptable and, and just extreme, you know, and, and willing to, you know, to use, uh, you know, very young girls as suicide bombers, uh, willing to, to conduct, you know, these kidnappings and, and massacres and so forth. And, uh, yeah, so they've, I think they've hung on through, through a combination of, of their own adaptability and, and the government's uh, uh, inability to get beyond, you know, kind of... Oh, body counts and, and a kind of a, you know, even sort of a, a strategic Hamlet type of approach to, to the conflict. So and I want to get into the split. You mentioned there's there are two factions now. Shakao has one and uh, there's another one ostensibly at least under the control of Abu Musab al-Barnawi. Uh, and they're operating in two different places. They're, they, they split at least publicly in August 2016, and it was kind of like ISIS uh, Central Command just kind of up and said, oh, hey, by the way, Abu Musab al-Barnawi is our new leader in West yeah. Africa, which meant he was, you know, the leader of, of Boko Haram, without any warning. <laughs> like, it's just kind of, they just kind of announced it out of the blue, and Shakao uh, resurfaced and said, no, uh, I'm still here, you know, I'm still in charge of this, the group, and we're, the, you know, we're in the right, and this is unacceptable. And they've kind of gone their separate ways, I guess. What what was the timeline for this? Because I know, I, you know as I said, it happened. The, the, they made the announcement in August, but there was for a, a few months prior to that, there was talk that there had been some kind of separation in Boko Haram, and it was either over, uh, you know, the sort of fervency of one group's allegiance to ISIS and. Shakao maybe wasn't as intensely loyal to ISIS. Uh, there was talk that Shakao is actually too violent for ISIS, that he's been killing too indiscriminately, uh, or that he was using children as suicide bombers, and that was a big problem. Um, what what do we know about why ISIS tried to make this change, and when? Like, what was the the sort of chain of events that led to it? Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, this, this split occurs in, in 20, 2016, August 2016, with, with ISIS elevating uh, Barnawi as, as the governor of their quote-unquote West Africa province. In a way, the, the, the reasons for the split go all the way back to, to when Shakao assumed command of, of Boko Haram. As I mentioned before, he's been accused by his enemies of being extremely tyrannical and authoritarian and, and capricious and, and of just killing people, of killing senior members of Boko Haram who, who disagreed with him. So even by 2011, 2012, there were, there were people who were really angry at him and, and discontent with his leadership uh, and all kinds of personal 
feuds and, and disagreements within some of the top echelons of, of the group. Then superimposed on that are, are strategic and theological disagreements. So on the, and, and those, I think, in a way are, are almost uh, identical. You know, the, the theological disagreement is basically about uh, who should be considered a Muslim versus who should be declared an, an unbeliever or an apostate. For Shakao, who who I think you know started off really extreme and got more extreme over time, Shakao says basically that unless you are actively resisting the Nigerian government, aka unless you're actively supporting Boko Haram, then you have fallen into unbelief. So even people who just happen to live, you know, even Muslims who just happen to live in an area controlled by the Nigerian government, according to Shakao, they become unbelievers, and not just unbelievers, but they become legitimate targets for violence. And this is not just theoretical for Chicago. I mean, Boko Haram has killed, you know, thousands and thousands of, of Muslim civilians. Uh, and when they did exercise territorial, you know, formal territorial control, they, they were really pretty brutal. I mean, it doesn't, or very brutal. It doesn't really look like they provided much in the way of, of services and things like that. The other side then says that, you know, look, if somebody is a Muslim and they just happen to be living in an area under government control, that doesn't automatically make them an unbeliever, nor does it make their blood kind of licit for Boko Haram to take. Uh, as I said, this lines up with, with some strategic disagreements. You know, for for Shakao, um, the whole world, in some sense, the whole outside world seems to be an enemy, uh, whereas for Barnawi, there's, there's talk at least of refocusing their insurgency against the Nigerian state, against Christians, and and not targeting, uh, you know, Muslim civilians. So, in a way, everything that you know came came to a head in, in 2016 goes back, you know, all the way to to these kind of pivotal moments for the movement. What's the situation now in terms of, um, you know, which of these groups? Which of these factions is more active, is, has been more successful, um, and where do things stand in terms of um, the, the fight against them, uh, both in Nigeria and, and at the regional level? So I think, you know, now more, more eyes are on Barnawi's group. I mean, he, because of some of these theological and strategic positions that they've taken, uh, they seem more, more dangerous, more more politically dangerous in a way, you know, because if they really carry out what they're saying, then possibly they have a chance to win some, maybe not popular support, but but some kind of you know significant cooperation from from civilians in in the far northeastern part of the country and along the shores of of Lake Chad and so forth. So you know, a lot of kind of. Uh, uh, international and, and even domestic focus is now on them, and, and I think a lot of people see them as, as you know pretty scary and formidable. Uh, in a way, there's also possibly you know if they are more I don't want to use the word moderate or you know rational, but if 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 they have this kind of more uh, accommodating stance towards civilians, possibly that means there's an opening. Uh, and it's very unclear always what's going on in terms of dialogue or, or back-channel communication between the Nigerian government and, and these different factions. But there was this really murky incident 
earlier this year where there was a, a kidnapping in this town called Dapchi, uh, almost certainly by this Barnawi faction, and they kidnapped something like 110 girls and then returned most of them uh, fairly shortly afterwards. And the Nigerian government said, you know, oh, we're in talks with them, not just about these girls, but, but in terms of a broader cessation of, of hostilities. It's hard to know how meaningful that really is. Possibly, though, Barnawi's outlook makes him more amenable to, to negotiations. On the other hand, uh, if he is just, you know, more politically savvy and sophisticated, uh, maybe he has less of an incentive to, to actually talk to the Nigerian government if the momentum is with him. All that said, um, Shakao has been counted out kind of again and again. You know, the Nigerian military has said repeatedly that they've killed him. Uh, you know, analysts have counted him out and so forth. He's not, at this point, kind of as you know, sort of flashy as the Parnawi group, but he's hung on through all kinds of setbacks, problems. He's always, you know, after he's been pronounced dead, he's always showing up in new videos and so forth. There was a new, you know, release from him not too long ago. Um, his faction definitely retains, you know, some military capacity, capacity to conduct suicide bombings and so forth. So um, I would never, I would never fully count him out. I want to switch gears now because uh there was a story uh was reported just not that long maybe a week or two ago um that the other the non-boko haram conflict in nigeria uh that has killed i think it was six times as many people so far this year as the boko haram conflict has but it gets a lot less attention uh which is this um and, and it's it's less organized. I, I think maybe the, part of the reason it doesn't get as much attention is because there's no bad guy you can point at and make a story about. But the the conflict between um, the sort of pastoralist population of kind of northern, northwestern uh, Nigeria and the settled population in the south, the farming population, uh, where these two overlap kind of across this middle belt of Nigeria, uh-huh. there's been a, a long time, long standing kind of uh, back and forth conflict between these groups. It often gets reported, uh, it seems to me anyway, in, in Western media as the the Muslims in the north fighting the Christians in the south. But I, I want to ask you about this because I think the the more salient issue is the herders in the north and the farmers in the south. It's not a Muslim-Christian thing necessarily. Uh, but can you talk about this conflict and, and some of its dimensions in terms of uh, the involvement of the Fulani and the the, uh, the the different kind of ways that you can splice this this out in a sense? Yeah, so it's it's extremely complicated. If if you were gonna pick one dimension to to you know simplify it as basically then then yeah, as you say, I mean the, the herder farmer dimension is, is the one to go with. I mean, you know, one one really nasty thing about the conflict aside from the violence itself is, is just all the distorted ways that, that people talk about it, you know, not just within Nigeria, but also in, in Washington and elsewhere. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the herders, the Fulani, you know, are overwhelmingly Muslim has meant that, you know, the conflict gets uh, folded in and misrepresented. You know, people talk about it as being a, a kind of a jihad that the Fulanis are waging against the, you know, against these various uh, predominantly Christian ethnic groups. 
there's conflicts involving the Fulani elsewhere in, in West Africa, you know, particularly in, in Mali, in central Mali. So sometimes the, the conflicts in Nigeria get folded in and people talk about kind of a, a Fulani extremist, you know, menace across West Africa. Um, I think all that kind of rhetoric is, is extremely dangerous and, and politicized and just deeply unfair. You know, I think it can amount to a, a, a kind of a, a profiling and demonization of, of you know, one of West Africa's largest ethnic groups. Um, and as you point out, I mean, the violence is not, you know, there's a lot of kind of conspiracy theory in, in the Nigerian media and, and elsewhere, in part because Buhari, the president, is ethnically Fulani. There's a lot of conspiracy theories saying this violence is centrally organized. It's all part of a, a conspiracy. It's, you know, something the president orchestrates or, or people close to him orchestrate to, to destabilize the country. Uh, in my view, none of that is true. I mean, the roots of the conflict, to my mind, are, are manifold, but they're, you know, not, uh, they don't have to, to do with some kind of central conspiracy. They have to do with uh, ecological changes, you know, climate change, desertification, and so forth, uh, population growth, you know, which, which pushes herders out of their, you know, traditional grazing routes or has farmers encroaching on those grazing routes. Uh, in any case, there's more and more competition over land and water and where animals can go. Uh, simultaneously, there's, you know, all kinds of political developments, particularly since the 1990s. Um, you know, administrative reorganization in Nigeria, you know, the, the creation of new states, the creation of new local government areas, created all kinds of political competition between different ethnic blocs and, and even religious groups over who was going to control some of these new units, um, then you have, you know, uh, unscrupulous leaders and, and inflammatory rhetoric that, that takes, you know, a political and ecological conflict and, and adds in kind of ethnic and, and religious dimensions and ratchets up tensions on, on multiple sides. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's grown and, and, and is probably going to continue to grow in, into one of the foremost kind of security challenges in the country. But because there's not any kind of central, you know, at least according to any evidence that I've seen, because there's no sort of central planning, um, it makes it really hard for the authorities to deal with. Uh, and it makes it really hard for the authorities to deal with it in a way where they're seen by all sides as, as fair. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, the central challenges in the country at this point. <clears throat> there's another, there was uh, another story um, I want to say was maybe last week. Uh, that the Nigerian government is moving uh, military resources into the northwestern part of the country to deal with, uh, it sounded basically like organized crime in a sense, like cattle yeah. rustling and, uh, you know, attacks on villages from, from gangs. Can you talk a bit about that? Is that related to the, the is this like a third area of conflict or is it tied into any of the other uh, problems that Nigeria is having or, uh, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, so Zamfara state in the Northwest is, is one of, is basically the epicenter of, of that conflict at the moment. And yeah, I've, I've been trying to get a handle on it, you know, myself analytically. I mean, as you say, it seems to have to do with, with organized banditry, uh, cattle thieving and so forth. So in a way, uh, it is, you know, related to, or an extension of some of these farmer herder conflicts from elsewhere. I mean, Definitely across the country and across the north, there's just extreme tensions over, over land use and so forth. And then also these conflicts do become interlinked 
in the sense that Nigerian authorities really struggle to, you know, manage all of them simultaneously. Um, people ask me sometimes, you know, is, is Boko Haram an existential threat to Nigeria? I always say no. Is the former herder conflict an existential threat? No, I don't think so. But possibly in, in the aggregate, you know, because authorities have to kind of scramble to keep up with different security challenges in different parts of the country uh, and have to figure out how to allocate, you know, resources and soldiers and so forth, the kind of total effect of, of these security crises, yeah, that the, the country often does seem like it's like it's in pretty bad shape. That leads me into my final question, which is um, about the political situation in Nigeria. Buhari, as you said earlier, Nigeria is conducting elections next year. Buhari is running for president again. He's been ill uh, with something. Nobody seems to know what it is, and he's been back and forth to London several times, occasionally uh, extended stays in London for medical treatment. There's concern that if he continues and, and dies in office, uh, he'll be replaced by his vice president, uh, who is a Christian. And you also mentioned this earlier, there's a sort of effort, or like I guess informal effort, to kind of make sure that power rotates around the country and uh you know buhari was uh, the muslim president who followed good luck jonathan who was a christian and if he if his term is cut short uh and he's replaced by a christian there's there's concern that that could cause uh some resentment in the north um on top of that he, there are all these conflicts and there seems to be not just in the north. I mean, we've focused on that, but there are conflicts in the Niger Delta and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, over the, the distribution of oil wealth and the, the ecological damage that's been done to that region. How tenuous is Buhari's hold on power at this point? Um, is, would you expect him to be reelected next year? And what is the potential? If he were to be reelected and and this illness flares up again and he dies or is incapacitated and has to to uh, leave office, for there to be some, uh, you know, for that to contribute to some, you know, national kind of uh, uh, tensions. I mean, this is all this is all so complicated. I mean, it's probably worth underscoring at this point that I, I think Nigeria is just one of the most complicated, you know, countries to, to understand. I mean, I, I don't I don't feel that I understand it, you know, nine times out of ten. And, and you know, I think it's up there with, with Pakistan or China or the United States as, as just one of these countries where, you know, as you keep going down through layers of complexity, it, it just becomes uh, so much uh, harder to say, that you, <laughs> you know, that you really understand what, what's, what's really going on with the place. I mean, I think that I think, on the one hand, that there are tremendous advantages to incumbency anywhere, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, anywhere, particularly maybe in, in West Africa and, and in Nigeria. I mean, there's, <clears throat> you know, the ability of, of the presidency to, uh, you know, command resources, to, you know, to rig on occasion, to, to or, or more than on occasion, you know, to intimidate people, to... Networks of, of patronage and so forth. I mean, so to me, always the incumbent, you know, is in is in a very favorable. 
said, uh, you know, the incumbent Jonathan lost in, in 2015 to Buhari. You know, and he lost in a way because uh, I think elite coalitions shifted as as people just gave up on on him and saw him as you know, even for the Nigerian system, as, as too corrupt, too ineffective, and, and just not able to deal with the country's problems. You hear some of the same rhetoric and, and complaints about Buhari now, and there's been uh, an enormous amount in recent weeks of, of what Nigerians call decamping, you know, as, as prominent politicians, including the president of the Senate, you know, and multiple, you know, governors and senators and so forth, as, as people switch away from the ruling party to, to the old ruling party, now the main opposition party. So Buhari definitely looks to be already in, in a fair amount of trouble. I think what would be the the biggest blow to him. I mean, essentially, his coalition is is the North plus the Southwest. So, if you see, if you saw like major politicians in the Southwest defecting, um, that would be, I think, you know, starting to to, to look toward a, a real loss by Buhari. Um, if he's able to hang on to those two regions, though, then you know he uh, he has a fair chance of being reelected. But even within the North, I mean, part of the problem with this, you know, rotational system of power is that Buhari has been the main kind of candidate of the North for, for a long time. That leaves other Northern politicians uh, essentially waiting forever for their turn to be president. So people are getting impatient, you know, if, if power rotated back to the South after Buhari, uh, some of the, you know, Northern politicians were in kind of the second tier. I mean, they could be looking at at just years and years before they could even try for the presidency. So people are getting restless even in the North, and that could cost him some support. If he does win and he does die in office, I think it would it would really, uh, I mean, it would really be problematic. It would really throw things into into real uncertainty and, and chaos. I mean, Nigeria has been through that once before, uh, a Northern president dying unexpectedly and, and prematurely in office. And that you know, threw things off in, in the country in, in a major way. I mean, Jonathan, you know, probably too long of a story to go into here now, but Jonathan essentially came to power uh, by accident or, or as a result of his, his predecessor's fatal illness. So, you know, and that led to all kinds of uh, crises and tensions and rivalries. So, Bari's vice president, you know, and, and I assume he'll keep the same ticket in 2019. I mean, his, his vice president, I think, is, is an extremely... Uh, capable person who has, you know, goodwill from different parts of the country. But as president, things have changed, and I think it would touch off a, a power scramble that, that that would, A, be really uh, fraught and tense, and, and that, B, would distract attention away from, from dealing with some of these security challenges and economic challenges and so forth. So, um, I don't know, far be it for me to, to you know, advise you know, Nigeria or Nigerians what to do, but um, yeah, definitely I'm, I'm concerned about 2019, almost whichever way it goes. Alex, thank you again for uh, coming on to talk about all of this stuff. Yeah, thanks uh, a lot. I would uh, love to have you back to talk about Mali at some point, if you'd be into that. Yeah, of course, of course, I'd love to. Uh, the blog is sahelblog.wordpress.com. I'll put a link in the show description. And uh, Alex's book, Salafism in Nigeria, Islam Preaching and Politics, and Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, Alex Thurston, again, thank you so much. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll definitely definitely do this again sometime. Great. Well, I really-
really appreciate you having me on. And yeah, big fan of, of the blog and of the show. So very glad to, to participate. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's always nice to hear. All right. Uh, I think that was really interesting. I hope everybody finds that interesting. A lot of details about a conflict that I don't think we have a great handle on, uh, most of us at least, here in the West. Uh, I want to thank Alex again for coming on. I kept him much longer than I said I was going to. I was running late this morning, and then it took me a while to kind of adjust my primitive recording situation to try and get him and me to sound uh, at least audible to everybody. Uh, So, uh, yeah, it was not my finest hour, but he was a good sport about it. So uh, I want to thank him again for coming on and for putting up with, with my amateurishness. On top of that, he still came on even though he's dealing with a cold. So just an all around uh, heroic effort, I think on Alex's part. I will put a link to Alex's blog in the show description uh, and links to uh, both of his books, not Amazon links. Uh, I highly recommend them. I highly recommend the blog. uh, And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this as much as uh, I did, as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, So that's it for today. We'll be back later this week. Probably with a one-off episode. I haven't really decided what the topic is going to be, but I'm sure we can think of something. Uh, And until then, as always, uh, thank you guys for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.